from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Next presenter is John V. Geishaker, is the executive director and general counsel of Doctors Opposing Circumcision, and is a powerful ally in the medical field, promoting awareness of and mobilization against circumcision. Please join me in welcoming him. Thanks very much. Thank you for that. I'm going to wear my jacket just for a couple minutes so you know that I can afford one. <laughs> and then I'll probably take it off. Many of you will have read, because it's become a commonplace meme in the American journals of all kinds, that HIV can be solved in Africa by circumcision. The, the, the number that's commonly used is 60-63% um, prophylaxis, that is a, a protective effect if a male is circumcised from getting HIV. Um, but you probably don't know the backstory, and I'm going to give it to you here. Now, you'll have to be a little tolerant of this. It's a little word-heavy, it's a little abstract, and it's a little statistical. And I'm not a stats expert, but I, I kind of know bad statistics when I see them by instinct. And so what I've done here is distill the work of Dr. Robert Van Howe, who is a pediatrician in Marquette, Michigan, who's done extensive works on the three African RCTs, as they're called, the Random Controlled Trials in Africa. So we're going to break it down here, uh, and um, I'm happy to answer any questions at any time, um, and we'll, we'll keep a brisk pace. Oops, I need my, my little advancer here. Actually, I, could, I guess I can sit in advance here without having to worry about it. Okay, but first, the nature of the crisis, so you understand that the, the, this is indeed, HIV is indeed a scourge in Africa, there's no doubt about it. 15 million Africans have died since the beginning of HIV, which, by the way, extends all the way to the 1930s when the, when the virus first crossed from the monkey community into the human community. So we have lost 15 million and probably many more actually because no one knew what the disease was in the 1940s, 1950s. 1.3 million Africans die each year, 22.5 million of them are living with AIDS currently. That leaves 14.8 million children who are orphans or have lost at least one parent. And currently, only 25% of Africans typically get what's called the antiretroviral therapy. And the highest number is South Africa, which has switched from being a country where they were very slow to get started on this to being the country that's the most aggressive about fighting HIV in Africa, and you'll, and you'll see why in a second. So 37% of infected South Africans get the antiretroviral therapy, which, by the way, not only saves your life, it makes you virtually impossible to transmit the virus to a partner, which is a very useful feature of, of the ARTs. Look at the graph of what's happened since 1988 in Africa. You can see that the, uh, the light-colored orange, the salmon orange, is to 1% to 5% HIV. Uh, when the, the darker orange is when it, it, it goes up to 5 to 10% of infected individuals. Uh, here in 1998, you can see, especially in South Africa and areas, it's beginning to darken to the point where people have 20 to 30 percent. And there are regions of Africa where the HIV in the community is 40 percent infected. Unbelievable if you think about it. Compare that now to um, the, uh, uh, well, here's a graph showing the, the incidence. Notice it's flattening out a little bit. It actually has slowed down uh, in its uh, virulence in Africa. 
Here's the U.S. situation by contrast. Now, these numbers are high, but they're a tiny percentage of what's happening in Africa. We have half a million people who have died since the early 80s when it was first discovered uh, in the U.S. About a million people are infected, and 20% of those are unaware that they're infected. 54,000 people acquire the infection each year, but we have a country of 350 million people, so that's not exactly a huge epidemic at this point. Uh, the rate is 0.6%, which means six people in 1,000 uh, in the population will have HIV, and we have a high ART rate, a high rate of people who are covered by antiretroviral therapies. There are hot spots like Washington, D.C., which for cultural reasons is at 3% and even towards 6% in some regions, the poorer regions of Washington, D.C. It's disproportionately, alas, a disease of men having sex with unprotected sex with other men and of people who inject uh, illegal IV drugs. Now, since, since 2005 and the beginnings of the studies in Africa, the notion that, that HIV can be stopped by circumcision has sort of risen on our cultural radar. Um, it's, it's in the form of a meme. How many of you under, uh, know the term meme or use it casually? A, a meme is a unit of culture. And I think the term was invented by uh, Richard uh, Dawkins in his various books on biology. A meme is a unit of culture that gets transmitted from person to person folklorically without the backup analysis of why it, that might be the case. It's, it's in a sense a free-floating idea or belief. Here are the RCTs and the individuals responsible for them. Um, in Raki, Uganda in 2005, Ronald Gray began a study of some individuals, we'll see in a second how many. In Kisumu, Kenya, Robert Bailey ran a study. Kenya, those are both Eastern, Middle East, I mean, in a sense, Eastern African countries that are in the middle of the country. Um, and in Orange Farm in Africa, Bertrand Auvert, who's a, a French epidemiologist, ran another study. The Ugandan study had almost 5,000 participants, Kenya uh, almost, almost 3,000, and South Africa about the same number, a little over 3,000. Um, and I want to thank here Dr. Van Howe, whose statistical work I'm basically uh, analyzing for you here, and also Hugh Young, a fellow New Zealander. I'm, I'm from New Zealand. And aside, by the way, for New Zealand abandoned circumcision. Uh, New Zealand's rate of circumcision in the 1950s went to 99, probably 0.9%. Nobody escaped. Uh, very few escaped. Maoris did, by the way. The indigenous Polynesian people escaped completely uh, because they have very strong beliefs about, the, about having to need their entire body their whole life. Very sensible, in my opinion. Um, but they, they dropped circumcision in the 1960s like a hot potato. And now there, are no, there have been no infant circumcisions in New Zealand since the mid-1960s. It's amazing. And yet, <laughs> a whole generation of grandfathers are completely circumcised. The fathers are sort of, you know, hit and miss, and the sons wonder what happened to, the, to their poor fathers and grandfathers. Okay, here's the method they used in Africa to do this study. They took groups of HIV-negative men and divided them randomly into two groups, a control and an experimental group. The control group was offered an immediate circumcision, and we'll talk later about the problems of that. And the experimental group was promised a free circumcision later on, perhaps two years later, but never quite got there, actually. And then the seroconversion, that is the number of people infected, were compared in both groups. Now, here's a little warning for you about statistics. I love this quote. The American mind seems extremely vulnerable to the belief that any alleged knowledge which can be expressed in figures is, in fact, as final and exact as the figures in which it is expressed. And also, there's a common statistical thing you'll all notice, and that's the deep decimals. 
somebody says something happens 10.003% of the time, you're inclined to think just because there's a thousandth of a percent in there that somehow that suggests the accuracy of the statistic, but, but statistics can lie gloriously, as we know. So here's the results. The number of men who were, who were circumcised who got infected after 12 months was 1.5% of the groups. And, and I've combined the stats to make it easy, but the studies were very similar. The intact, that is the men who were not circumcised, their infection rate was higher, 3.38% of the group. So the absolute risk reduction you could argue for for circumcision is 1.8%. And this is the stat you should be reading in your newspaper, not the 53%, because that's the relative risk reduction comparing the two little groups. So one of the commonest errors in statistics is for people to jack up their results by talking about relative changes and not talking about absolute changes. I, I sometimes joke that I could I could, I could uh, protect you by a thousand percent from being hit by a meteorite by insisting you live in a coal mine. Um, and you'd say, but geez, I don't really have a very high, high risk of getting hit by a meteorite. But I said, but, but listen to me, I'm talking about protecting your life. A thousand percent, are you not interested in that? And of course you really shouldn't be. All right, here's what the graph looks like if you do an honest graph of the difference between the relative and uh, um, or the absolute benefits between circumcision and not, and not circumcision. It's pretty unimpressive, isn't it? Here's another way of, of looking at it. The green are the HIV negative people. A good number were lost from the study, and the HIV positive is the small red group at the bottom. Once you look at the overall picture of the number of people and the, and the number of people who actually serial converted, it doesn't look very impressive. It certainly has nothing to do with 60%. Here's my favorite cartoon on this subject. This is courtesy of Hugh Young. Uh, fellow countrymen. Thanks to circumcision, HIV has, has decreased 60%. And I love the comment. Question, are you asking a room full of engineers to be excited about a big percentage decrease over a trivial base? <laughs> it's, it's a good question. And then the final panel, you leave me no choice, we call you an anti-circ zealot. Nobody listens to them. So that's great. All right. Now let's go through the flaws. Now this gets a little statistical. Hang in there. It'll get interesting. It, it is interesting. Flaw number one, over half the infections were non-sexual. One of the biggest secrets of the, AR, of the RCTs in Africa is that an awful lot of African HIV infections are caused by physicians reusing one-use medical supplies, not autoclaving the equipment, attending people who have HIV but not worrying about the next person who might get HIV from the tools they just used on, on the first person. So iatrogenic uh, transmission of HIV is itself a huge, huge and scandalous um, uh, event in, in Africa. If you remove all the non-sexual infections, that is those that came from blood transfusions and medical care, the, all the African RCTs disappear because their results are not statistic, statistically significant. Here's my favorite quote on this, comes from Dr. Jennifer Vines up in Oregon. <clears throat> the authors did not control for other sources of HIV transmission such as blood transfusions or infected needles. Controlling for this route of infection could result in a smaller difference between HIV infection rates in the circumcised versus the intact groups, indicating that circumcision may not be as effective at decreasing HIV transmission as the article suggests, I would say indeed. 
All right, flaw number two, research your expectation bias. Remember, these, these can't be double-blind studies. I mean, you know if you've been circumcised, and the doctor knows if you've been circumcised. So there's no sense pretending that you can't use a placebo effect in this kind of a study. But they were known proponents of, of, of uh, male circumcision prior to HIV. In a sense, I have said, it's a bit cynical, that the HIV crisis in Africa was a gift to male circumcision proponents, historical male circumcision proponents. Their claim is that there's sufficient evidence to recommend universal circumcision, which is frankly what they're really looking for. Flaw number three, participant expectation bias. That is, what did the participants in the trial expect? Well, they were told that male circumcision was protective, which would affect their behavior. There was a lack of blinding, and there was a desire for circumcision. Now, why an African man would submit to circumcision without be being campaigned on the subject if he's an adult is an interesting question. But remember, a lot of African cultures have already existing traditions of bush circumcisions, which are both dangerous and painful. And I can see a 16-year-old African man saying, geez, do I want to have a circumcision that's at least a, provides anesthesia and has a, a, you know, a semblance of Western medicine to it, or do I want to go to the bush and have one of those initiation rites that my friends tell me are horribly painful? Well, I know the choice that I would make and most of you would make. The, uh, the RCT authors created a demand for male circumcision among unemployed young men by bribing them, frankly. Um, participants were interested in the promise of a free male circumcision and other benefits, and we'll get to that in a second. Now, flaw number four is a bit tough to understand. Uh, the, the study claims uh, Bob Van Howe was overpowered. That is to say it was big enough at almost 10, more than 10,000 individuals that you could find uh, some correlation between something. You gave me 10,000 people, I bet I could prove that people that own brown hats have small dogs. Because there'd be enough people there that three people that would be true for, right? So the more individuals you have, the more you can data mine for your particular conclusion if you work at it. And Bob says it's, it's large enough to find identifiable differences that are clinically unimportant. In other words, you could do a gigantic drug study and still find correlations that don't mean anything medically. You all know about, you know, Butter is bad, butter is good, butter is bad, butter is good. You have to read the newspaper to see what it is today. Now, flaw five, selection bias. Only men interested in male circumcision were included, and so that possibly, that automatically excludes others who might have been at lower risk because of behavior or genetics. We don't know. So that's a flaw of the study itself. Number six, they were well paid. Mostly were unemployed in the Orange Farm. Orange Farm, South Africa, is a horrible, horrible slum with an unemployment rate of like 50% and worse. And frankly, the young men were desperate. And this way, they would get cash, they'd get a free circumcision, and they'd get free health care for a year or two, which in the US would be like giving you $12,000. So that, just the very structure of these studies, makes them unethical in the US. But you can get away with it if you can work, in, work it in black Africa. Now, here's the geographical bias. This is intriguing to me. No studies were done in Ghana, Cameroon, Tanzania, Lesotho, Malawi, Rwanda, and Swaziland, places where circumcised men are more likely to be HIV negative infected. Look at, just look at Ghana and Cameroon to make it easy. The HIV prevalence in Ghana among circumcised men is 1.6. In intact men, it's actually lower. And then look down below at Cameroon. Now, Cameroon's interesting because the HIV prevalence in circumcised men is like more than three times the rate of intact men, exactly the opposite of the claims of the RCTs, and so on. Each of those countries that's in blue and red there has the same problem, which is that 
How do you explain that their circumcised men actually have more HIV? Flaw number eight is ethical problems, and we've already hinted at these, but South African men were not told their HIV status. The claim of the studies, of the people who did the studies, was that the men would, are from cultures where being HIV positive would stigmatize you. And so they didn't want to tell the men that they had HIV because that would be embarrassing for them and problematic. Well, as a practical matter, they sent men home to infect their partners. And that's exactly the problem that we had with Tuskegee. Some of you may know the history of Tuskegee. I know that my colleagues here do. Some may not. In the 1930s, the CDC, in conjunction with I forget what hospital, designed a study of syphilis in black males where they didn't... Was it U.S. public? It was USPS? Okay. They, they did a study of syphilis among black males and didn't tell them they had syphilis because they wanted to see what would happen long term. So hundreds and hundreds of people got tertiary syphilis, which, which, by the way, is not just a genital disease. It eventually affects your brain and it's a horrible way to go at the end. Um, and that is, that, that stand, that's the gold standard for unethical behavior in uh, medicine and bioethics. And precisely that same condition happened in the RCTs in Africa, and they haven't been called to account for it. Um, there was no full disclosure with informed consent. It, it basically, it was as scanty a, a, a consent as you can imagine. The men were circumcised that same day. Certainly, they were never, ever told of the sexual effects of the kind that Marilyn so articulately described uh, for this surgery. So in other words, if you were doing an, a, a lawyer, lawyerly analysis of the counts here, it would be that the participants were placed at risk in a study with built-in biases, which guaranteed the investigators the results they wanted, and the benefits were coercive and unethical. Lead time bias, this is an interesting one, requires a little thinking for a second. The early circumcised were told to avoid sex for four to six weeks. So what happened was if you compare the results over one year, somebody got a two-month head start. So the, the men who were circumcised early got a two-month head start where they didn't have sex, so they weren't put at risk. And that affects this, the uh, results entirely. The bias overestimate, according to Bob, is uh, on the order of 10%, which wipes the whole studies out. Fail yes, ma'am? In the third study, they adjusted it somewhat. Yeah, it was suggested that the men themselves might have gone longer because of the effects of the circumcision, too. I hadn't heard that, but I'm not terribly surprised. Mind you, it could also be counterbalanced by men who were desperate enough to have sex when they still had a, something of, a, of an open, scar, open wound, and you know, that would kind of counterbalance the notion. But in any case, it's not a very good study if you're looking for purity of result. Um, in a South Africa study, the two groups differed by age, religion, and tribe, and that tribe makes a big difference in Africa. <coughs> there was no attempt to reconcile that. Does anyone have an unopened water that I could, uh, well, even an open? Is there one? That's oh, okay. You're disease-free, aren't you, Mary? Good. Thanks. Anyways, the next problem is that for every participant infected, a huge number were lost. I mean, at the highest, 7.4 for every individual it, it, it was involved, was lost. Well, uh, you, you have to wonder what would have happened had those people stayed in the study. And for every sexually transmitted infection of HIV, up to 17.6 uh, participants were, or 17.6 participants were lost, yeah. Small differentials in the loss group could negate these findings too. And the, all of these flaws are cumulative. Uh, you know, the more flaws you have in the study, the more the results of the study, especially when they're small, are called into question. Now, here's a quote, my, my favorite quote about ignoring dropouts, and this comes from Bad Science by Goldacre. Uh, drug studies are an example. 
People who drop out of trials are statistically more likely to have done badly and much more likely to have had side effects. They will only make your drug look bad. So ignore them, make no attempt to chase them down, they would say up in England. Um, do not include them in your analysis. That's a great quote. <laughs> it's a great way to run a drug study. And by the way, there's a scandal that just came out this week about how Africa is being used by big pharma and big American institutions like Johns Hopkins, University of Illinois, et cetera, to do studies that they couldn't run ethically in the United States. They're using basically Africa as a guinea pig for whatever drugs and whatever procedures they can come up with. I mean, I think it's a huge scandal. It's, it's definitely going to hit the wall. Well, they do it because they can get away with it. And, and frankly, there is so much money free-floating here, provided by the Gates Foundation and others, that local African officials who are poor, and even if they're the honest officer, chief medical officer of a small African colony, country, or tribe, they can't turn down scads of American money, which they could use for other kinds of, of things. So of course they're going to say, yeah, let's start a circumcision campaign so they can get the money into their system so they can use it for useful things. I mean, we're hoping they'll use it for more useful things. But you can't blame poor countries for being attracted by American cash. You simply cannot. It it doesn't, it's not familiar. <laughs> right, well, the other thing is unequal crossovers, and this is a bit abstract too, but let's, let's hit it. The number of men assigned to be circumcised who were, who were not, okay, and the number of men randomized to wait, but got circumcised early for whatever reason, maybe they elected to, was not equal in the two groups. And that the suggestion for there is that the men who, who did not receive the immediate free circ they wanted dropped out. So that affects the accuracy of the study as well. Flaw 13, are you, are you getting saturated on the flaws here? Have, you, have I convinced you? <laughs> Flaw 13, unequal treatment. Men were randomized uh, to early circumcision, had follow-up visits. Now, I actually think this is very critical. If I were Bob, I'd put this on the front end because I think it's the biggie along with the relative absolute problem. Men randomized to early circumcision had follow-up visits, but this allowed the staff to influence them and to urge them to... To, to provide, to provide uh, safe sex advice, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they were continually being educated, which would surely have affected their behavior. Um, early termination, this study, the, the proponents quit the study after one year, saying it would be unethical to continue it because the results were so overwhelmingly positive in favor of circumcision that even waiting would be unethical. Well, isn't that convenient? If the, stu if the study had been big and long, Maybe the benefits they saw would have roughened out in the stats and come to nothing at the very end, but that's not exactly the result they wanted. So and it also amplifies the lead time bias. If you have a short study, that eight-week lead time the men who were circumcised got gets to be a bigger percentage of the year, right? You run it out two years, two months is, is only one-twelfth. If you run the study for only a year, that lead time is a full one-sixth, a lot of, a, quite a difference. So here are some mysteries and anomalies for you. Why did participating increase risk? Medical exposure, asked Bob. Or self-selected population at higher risk to begin with? That's certainly possible too. In South Africa, the intervention was not consistent between tribes, for probably cultural reasons. In Kenya, the intervention was effective for one group of young men, but not the 18-year-olds. Uh, Why is that? We don't, we don't know. Facts that don't make sense. Why is HIV higher in seed men and intact men in South Africa? Um, United States versus Europe, why is the rate of heterosexually transmitted HIV so much higher in the U.S. than it is in Europe? Um, the answer could be that Americans don't like condoms because they're circumcised. There are lots of different things you could ask about that. 
If the increase in protection by a 90% circumcision rate, which they'll never get to in our lifetime, uh, can be undone by a 5% decrease in condom usage, then what's the point? And if antiretroviral therapy, which remember, prevents seroconversion even between what's called discordant partners, a, a man who's positive, a woman who's negative, and, and treating STDs are more effective, less costly and less invasive, why bother with circumcision? Here are the contra studies, including three by the authors of the African RCTs. Studies, in other words, that show that the effect is not as good as you would hope, or, and I'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, it endangers women. There's a remarkable number of them, we won't go through them, but, uh, and they're available to you if you want to look fully explained in a wonderful website you should all know about called Circumstitions, once again by Hugh Young, the guy that did the Dilbert cartoon. Okay, here's, here's Michel Guerin, who I met in, uh, in uh, Mexico. Actually, I've met him twice now, I think. Long-term population effects of male circumcision in Africa. Michel Guerin, who's at the Institut Pasteur in uh, Paris, says, in most countries with a complex ethnic fabric, the relationship between men's circumcision status and the HIV seroprevalence was not straightforward. He's trying to be polite here. These observations put into question the potential long-term effect of voluntary circumcision programs in countries with generalized HIV epidemics. Well, it's worse than that, Michelle, Dr. Michelle, because it's not going to be voluntary circumcisions. That's what they talked about in 2005 and 2006. But I have watched very carefully, so has Marilyn, so has Jillian, as they've gone from voluntary circumcision for men to semi-voluntary circumcision for young men to involuntary circumcision for infants, which is, which is plan C and was, I think, the plan all along. Here's, uh, here's my comments on this. This is Epidemiology and Anthropology 101. First of all, the biggies. The risk avoidance by confident seen men. A lot of health officers in Africa are themselves concerned that young men are cheerfully lining up for circumcision so they can avoid using condoms and so they can tell women that they're HIV negative and will stay so because they're circumcised. In other words, they're going to use their circumcision status to give up on the only thing that prevents HIV, which is, or only things, which is either abstinence or condoms. So they are putting themselves and their partners at risk. And the risk to women is substantial because here's what I haven't mentioned and could have mentioned up front. All the RCTs only say that the male is protected from an infected woman. She is not, however, protected if he's HIV positive. In fact, she's even more at risk, according to the Wauer study. Does that make sense? So this is the, this is the most sexist plan for almost a billion African uh, people that you can imagine. I mean, this is just a recipe for a gigantic epidemic disaster. Um, and the other thing is 60% protection, even if it's true, is not 95% the gold standard for all immunizations. It is, it is what I call virulette, viral roulette. You're basically just playing with time. That infection will occur eventually. It just may take longer. Now, the other thing, the other, the other things uh, that we should mention is that circumcision, uh, the, the effort against HIV in Africa is a zero-sum game. And male circumcision, which is expensive, 95 times more expensive than condoms would be, is draining the dollars away from more effective programs. The other thing is bush circumcisions, in other words, circumcisions in the bush of men are, going, are, are not going to be done by doctors because there simply aren't enough doctors to do 900 million black Africans. They're going to be done by traditional healers. And I was in Mexico in 2008, and I talked to 
people who are proposing this program, and they freely admit there aren't enough doctors, that they're going to have to train locals to do one procedure, one procedure only, and there's going to be no follow-up. The van pulls up into town, they do the whole village, and drive away. There's no follow-up, and there's plenty of opportunities for iatrogenic HIV infection. <coughs> Condoms have other uses, too, preventing pregnancy, preventing HPV, which is, as we've already mentioned, one of the vectors for cervical cancer, and other sexually transmitted infections. Now, something you may not know is that this idea, a white people invented idea that circumcision solves the HIV problem in Africa, has been pitting tribes against tribes. In Kenya, for instance, the Luo, which is the tribe of Barack Obama and his father, uh, do not circumcise and haven't historically. But the Kikuyu, anybody see the movie uh, Out of Africa, one of my personal favorite movies? That's the, the tribe that's featured in there, or, or the Kikuyu. They do have a long-term, long-standing tradition of circumcision. They have been accusing the Luo of being the problem because they've been told that uncircumcised, intact men transmit HIV. So they've been capturing, waylaying Luo men who are found alone and circumcising them traumatically right in the street as kind of a tribe against tribe thing. By the way, uh, there's probably pretty good odds that, uh, this is an aside, of course, but there's a probably pretty good odds that Barack Obama is himself intact. His mother was a hippie atheist, and his father was an upper-class uh, Luo. So it's very likely that she either honored his request or he insisted that the boy be left intact. But we are not going to know until he's retired. And the other thing is cutting as a first-line disease control defense always strikes me as dodgy. The human body has evolved for many hundreds of thousands of years. And if we take the, vision, the, the notion that the way to solve disease is to start lopping parts off, there are no ends of surgeries you could invent that solve problems. I mean, I don't have any tonsils because some doctor made a car payment in 1958 off of them. I mean, it was, it was fantastic fraud in the 1950s. Play this game sometime at a party. Ask all the people who've had tonsillectomies to put up their hand, and you will find that it's everybody in their 60s, 50s and 60s. Almost nobody in their 20s and 30s is without their tonsils. It's interesting. It was just, it was the fashion of the day. Now, the other thing is that male genital cutting and female genital cutting traditions are self-sustaining. The cutters, the cut, become cutters. This is an anthropology rule, a fixed rule. Once someone has had a genital mutilation, they seem to have some embedded psychosexual need to have the next generation have that same initiation right or that same limitation. There are thousands of explanations for this. I'm fantastically beyond my pay scale by even speculating on any of them, but I leave you with that thought in any event. All right. Um, all right, this is Bob Van House talking about how circumcision is a wasteful distraction. This is, uh, this is um, uh, Hugh Young's illustration. If the African studies are correct, this is, this is you know, if everything I've said about their flaws is, you know, inconsequential and they're correct, it's still going to take 56 circumcisions to prevent one HIV case per year, and it will fail to prevent one. Not much of a gain. And that's true in Uganda with a 4% HIV rate. We have a 06 HIV rate in the U.S., 0.6 of a percent, 6 in 1,000, it would take three, statistically, it would take 380 circumcisions to stop one HIV case. So at huge expense. Uh, we already seen that slide. So I, to give you a flavor of the professionalism that surrounds the RCT effort in Africa, how do you like these quotes? 
we're hacking away, those foreskins are flying. That's Robert Bailey, University of Illinois, quoted in the New York Times barely a month ago. Um, it, it's amazing to me. I mean, I, I, I can't see how a man could possibly have that casual an attitude toward a surgery that serious on so many people and, and be able to have this, keep this in his head. It just, it, it appalls me to the, my core. The other one I, that struck me and I kept it was the one from Dr. Renee, Renee Stein at St. John's Mercy Medical Center in St. Louis talking about, and this is a Catholic hospital, right? Talking about their circumcision right there. We whack them all, she said. Wow, what a treat. You can imagine how appalled I was when I saw that in the Times. Here, um, one of my colleagues, David Llewellyn, Atlanta, Georgia, went to a meeting at the CDC in Atlanta, which is where his office is, and among the presenters to the CDC on how circumcision should be uh, proposed for Africa made fun of intact men, and David is intact and proud of it, by using this slide <coughs> showing the man as an elephant. So, question of taste, do you think there's any taste problem there? Here's um, Israeli Enon Schenker, whom I met in Mexico in 2008 with the Zulu chief uh, Goodwill Zwelfen. And I talked to Enon Schenker for quite a long time in Mexico, and. I, you know, frankly, I, I said to him, you're Israeli, and this is your, you're calling your operation Operation Abraham? Why didn't you call it Operation Sterile Procedure or Operation HIV Prevention? Why did it get called Operation Abraham? That has a slightly religious connotation for some of us, and he was offended by that because he said that uh, it wasn't his choice, blah, 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 blah. But he generally thinks that this is an opportunity for the Israelis because his claim is that Israelis have a unique expertise in adult male circumcisions because they did them wholesale to Russian immigrants to Israel in the 1970s when a huge was a huge outpouring of uh, Russian Jews into Israel. So he's on, a, he's on a quest for the business, as it were. Now, um, here's, a, here's a, a picture I found. The operation is a good chance for safe sex education. One of the things that Schenker and colleagues talked about in Mexico in 2008 when I met them was that the circumcision procedure itself was a marvelous opportunity for the man to have a quiet reading moment where he could read about safe sex and brochures they were going to have him read. Well, I don't know how your, what your attention span is like during surgery, even surgery with, with a decent local anesthetic, but I don't think I'd be reading much at the time. It struck me as a very thin reason to perform a procedure. You could also put him up on a table, all stand around, not cut him, and hand him the brochure, and then have an after test to see if he read the material and you get the benefit. Here's a billboard on the Ethiopian-Sudan border showing uh, that, that you should get circumcised, and there's a ton of these in Africa, tons and tons of them, put up by the local health authorities and by individuals who have much to gain. Here's Orange Farm in South Africa. The young men have flocked by the thousands to this clinic for circumcisions. And here's uh, Dr. Dino Reck. I've done 53 in a seven-hour day, me, myself, personally, said Dr. Dino Reck, who helped design the highly efficient surgical assembly line for cutting off foreskins. Well, I submit to you that if you do 53 procedures in a day, your first one might be decent, but I wonder about your 53rd. I think I'd want to be the, the mid-morning appointment, somewhere where you're back in the swing of it, but weren't yet exhausted. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it just it is insane to think that you can do 900 million circumcisions in Africa without a single problem. We have hard enough problem doing circumcisions to a decent standard in U.S. hospitals that are first rate, let alone in bush clinics and vans all over 
Sub-Saharan Africa. So thanks very much. I actually have two more slides. This is me sailing rather than talking about penises. <laughs> and this is my houseboat in Seattle, which Ellie has already seen. Which I built, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Any questions? The lady in the can, white visor. Can you explain um, how you calculate the um, absolute reduction in risk versus the relative reduction? Well, they're not my numbers for a start. They're Bob Van House, And I will happily give you his handout, which he would be delighted if we shared. In fact, I thought I had given it to Travis to, to, to uh, reproduce. Is it here? Ah, oh, it's excellent. Okay. Why don't you check, in, check those numbers in there? I, I mean... Asking about uh, explain the difference between the two as oh, opposed to the numbers. The relative yeah. and absolute? Yes, yeah. Well, just how are they calculated in general? Do you know what I mean? How does one calculate an absolute risk versus a relative well, risk? Well, let me give you an example off of the RCTs, which is a bit closer to home. One of the claims of people who propose circumcision is that it solves urinary tract infections for boys under one year. Um, but the, the actual rate, and even this I think is questionable for reasons I'll mention, I may mention in a minute. The absolute rate, if you believe it, of UTIs in infants is 1%, one boy in 100. Now, the proponents claim that, that if you circumcise boys, only one in 1,000 will get a urinary tract infection. So rather than saying to a parent, you know, he has only a 1% chance of having a UTI, and we could marginally improve on that by circumcising him, so then it'll go down to one in 1,000. But 1%, eh. But instead, what they do is they say, circumcision confers a, a 10 time protective effect. So what they use is they use the relative difference between one, between one one hundredth and one one thousandth and, and talk about that scale rather than using the absolute, which is the one in 100 that you should be talking about as the high risk side. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, but- The same thing's happening in the RCTs. Right, it just, it seemed like the absolute, uh reduction was really low then if it was like 1.8 percent and yeah, so in a population it, when uh hiv is so much more pro you know prominent it just seemed like it was a strange uh number so i was just curious how they this is what you're talking about right mm -hmm. yeah well see those who got those who got a circumcision out of every hundred right. one and a half of them a little over one and a half of them got hiv Whereas if you were circumcised in the early group, after 12 months, 3.3 out of 100 would get HIV. And it's the difference between those two right. that gives you your big number if you're dishonest about it. Oh, well, yeah, no, I'll stick with dishonest. Because I, I frankly think these studies are, frank, are, are rankly, rankly dishonest. And they have been marketed at their highest point of possible possible and not with none of the shades none of the nuances have been included and they and they they are so deeply embedded now you could walk out on on Maryland street here stop a cab and he'll tell you 60% protective effect that's how you know it's deep it's it's in place the other thing that might be worth mentioning here is David Gizelquist talks about, a medical anthropologist talks about today in Africa um, <clears throat> They have 
uh, HIV negative mothers with HIV positive babies, and it's because of vaccination with the same needle that these babies are getting HIV. So as you said, it's due, so much of this is due to the medical community and poor uh, health services there. We have a NOSERC center in uh, Kenya, and the man there says that the people there are eating once a day. Meanwhile, uh, these circumcision clinics are being uh, uh, touted, and males are being circumcised, not only within the clinics, but they're also being, as you said, captured and, and killed. And he said, all this money be, that's going into Africa that could be spent on safe health care practices, on feeding the people, on clean water and all of that, instead is going to be to, to mutilate the, the penises of the males there. It's a, uh, right. A I think David has also mentioned your other efforts would be better working on malaria, frankly. It's, it's as damaging a disease in Africa as HIV is. Many of the symptoms are the same between uh, malaria, and, and they're not really doing the test. They're just <clears throat> looking at the <clears throat> excuse me these the symptoms and saying, oh, this is HIV, when it may in fact be malnutrition or malaria or something else. Right. Oh, behind you, Ellie. Um, now, how does circumcision prevent I, uh, UTIs anyway? I, I would think it it no. might have been the other way around, but. It doesn't, and I, I will tell you, I spent a lot of my time working on what are called forced retraction cases, PFFFR, premature forcible foreskin retraction. <clears throat> and my claim, and I think it wipes out the entire UTI idea right off the bat, is that we have such a long tradition of forcibly retracting boys for cleaning, and it's invariably done septically. I mean, a bathtub, even if doctors used to advise parents to force the boy's foreskin back at each bath a little bit more each time. Well, what you're doing is ripping open two tissues leaving the capillaries open for a pathogen, and bathtubs aren't exactly the greatest place. They're, they might be clean, maybe, but you've still got the child's fecal material and so, at some level in the tub and, and other kinds of bacteria, so basically you're putting the child at risk. I claim that, that, that the UTIs are a fraud. <laughs> They're an open fraud. It was invented in 1982. Nobody thought about it before that. A guy named Thomas Wiswell studied UTIs yeah, the whiz, we call them. Even, even my mother, she didn't have any boys, but she had thought, when I had my first child who was a boy and he was intact, she thought you were supposed to use a Q-tip to insert and clean around inside. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a variant on cleaning, but when you do that Q-tip, you're damaging the membrane and opening up that tissue for pathogens. I'd also like to add that in uh, Israel, there's recently been a study that showed uh, doctors there were very concerned because um, boys had higher rates of urinary tract infections in Israel than they did in the United States, and uh, circumcised boys specifically. And they, uh, they looked into it and they came to the conclusion, and again, this is sort of uh, their analysis of the data, uh, it's their speculation, but they thought it had to do with the fact that there were much higher levels of traditional circumcisions in Israel and the form of hemostasis that was used by traditional circumcisers, which is basically just wrapping the penis in gauze, uh, they thought that was that was leading to it. But the data is that uh, Israeli boys um, who have very high rates of circumcision also have higher rates of urinary tract infections than uh, boys in the United States. You know, it, ma it makes sense, if I could continue for that. It makes sense in a way because the foreskin is protective of the inner urethra. And so, the, and the foreskin produces some substances, lysozyme and lysosome, which are both and which are both immune substances the body produces that kill pathogens. So not only do you have the boy cleaning himself by urinating, uh, several times a day, but you also have these pathogens at work trying to catch something before it can get to the urethral meatus. 
So it, it would make more sense to me if circumcised boys had much higher rates of UTI because of that loss of protection by itself. One of the things we didn't, I didn't talk about, and maybe this is a good point, and you can pick, pick up on this, John, but is the fact that the, at birth, and I'm, I mentioned it just a bit, that the foreskin and the glands are connected by a common membrane, and o over time, these two structures separate on their own, and it should a, a, a process, a natural process that should never be interfered with. And what, my point here is that the average age for foreskin retractability is 10.4 years. It may, some men are up till age 25, still do not have a retractile foreskin. If they want to have one, they can gently stretch it with the op opening. If, the, if a baby's head can push through a cervix for the birth of a baby, certainly a, um, a, a foreskin can be stretched to accommodate the width of the, of the glands. I should mention that as a lawyer, I handle 100 cases a year of forced retraction for the family. 100 cases. And I estimate the incidence in the U.S. per year at over 100,000. I think that the majority of the reason that, that we see these problems in UTIs and, and other deformities once kids get older and go to urologists is because people in Western culture aren't taught to take care of an intact penis and also they aren't um, comfortable with their sexuality. And a lot of the kids, particularly in my age group when I was younger, they weren't allowed to touch themselves or to retract their penis on their own. So they got to like larger ages, like 25 where they still had a connected tissue, not because they had any kind of deformity, but because they didn't have the opportunity to retract their own skin. Dr. Robert Van House says that the kids, that when you see a kid running around the house naked fiddling with himself, he's intact. He's actually doing his body a favor. Yeah. He's sort of encouraging that membrane to dissipate. And it's the only children don't, little boys don't pull their foreskin back. They pull it out to great lengths. You wonder if they're gonna, if, if the whole, the body's gonna come along with it. Yeah, and my, my son started doing that and I saw him go through the whole process naturally and he knew what he was doing and the only rule we had was, it's a privacy thing, so don't drop your drawers in the store. <laughs> but you can do it at home without a problem, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just kind of on a, another note, um, I'm a board certified lactation consultant and one of the things we learn in lactation is that a causative effect of not breastfeeding is an increase in UTIs for boys, yes. which is very interesting too. Yeah, I've never understood that mechanism, but obviously it has something to do with the immune system, I'm sure. Right, that I, that I, that I do understand. Um, I was curious right. if you knew how they had gotten such a massive amount of funding for the studies that they did in Africa. Um, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of the great mysteries of our time. I mean, very smart people, I, I didn't go on and on about it, but very smart people at Gates, and I have campaigned them all, very smart people at CDC, and very smart people at WHO in Geneva have, a, have swallowed this whole thing hook, line, and sinker. They just can't see their way through. They, I, it's, it baffles me. They plan on circumcising 900 million African men. Nine, on, on the basis of a study in which 200 men were basically involved. I do know that huge sum, that, that I, I can understand why African groups and some institutions like the University of Illinois and Johns Hopkins would want to get Gates Foundation money. That makes perfect sense. The world works like that. But I, I don't understand why people who don't have any stake, don't have a, a dog in the fight, like CDC and who would sucker for it? They don't need the money. Although, well, they might get in, some. It, it, the, 
that the WHO and the CDC understand what's really causing the problems and uh, why AIDS is being spread in Africa. Blaming, um, uh, blaming the foreskin is easier than blaming the fact that nobody has done anything about the atrocities that are occurring in Africa in terms of, of the healthcare professionals and, and what's being done to people there. I suppose it's professionally embarrassing at a minimum. Right. And I think it's a lot of it's an emotional response. You know, they have to, to agree with this. They have to believe there's something wrong with themselves, with their own penis, what happened to them. Uh, it seems like it's, it's a very emotional uh, Yeah, no, I would reason. say even psychosexual. I mean, these are a bunch of circumcised white guys running around black Africa. There's something already going on there. Any other questions? Well, thanks for being a lively audience. That was fun. <laughs> That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 